leading views. Today, we're speaking with Francesca Cavallo, European young leader and author of best-selling children's book, Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls, which is inspiring a new generation of women. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I love your book. I just bought it um, for my niece, who's going to be born in June. So I'm really, really excited to be speaking with you. Can you talk about what inspired you to put this collection of stories together? Yeah. So I wrote a book with my co-author, Elena Favilli, and uh, the book was inspired by a couple of things. Uh, one was our realization that most of the books that we grew up with featured male protagonists. And uh, when we looked at the landscape of contemporary children's books, we were pretty sure that things would have changed since the 80s. And instead, we found out that a lot, like the vast majority of children's books don't feature speaking female characters, and especially they don't feature female characters with a professional aspiration. So uh, we wanted to change that. The second part of the inspiration was our experience as entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. When we moved from Italy to Silicon Valley, we expected Silicon Valley to be the land of the future from, you know, a lot of uh, different points of views. And one of them was uh, gender equality. So we, Silicon Valley markets itself as the land of, you know, the land of meritocracy. So we were like, okay, I mean, if only merit counts, then there won't be any biases towards women. And instead, in the process of fundraising and then uh, trying to scale up a company uh, there, we realized that there was a lot of uh, gender bias that was still alive and that a tiny, I think, like 3% of venture capital every year goes to startups that are founded by female founders. So the problem is still very alive. So we felt the urge of creating a product for children that could contribute to create a new world where uh, gender does not define how big you can dream or how far you can go. I like the way you use this, um, protagonists that are women. Do you feel like your stories connect with children because they're about real people? Or, or do you think that it's just that nobody's ever really tried to put together so many stories that have women that aspire to be anything from all walks of life, um, that look like everybody, that are from all these different countries? Do you feel like that's why people connect with it so well? Certainly the book is one of the most diverse children's books out there. So that is certainly part of the success of the book because every girl can find a little piece of her experience of, of herself in, into the book. And I think that another component is the fact that these are real women and that the book celebrates the work of women. And that is extremely rare, not just in children's books, but also in media in general. When we see movies or TV shows, it is very likely whenever there is a, a mom who is working, that the relationship towards the fact that the mom is working is that the the kids feel left behind, that there is conflict in the family because the woman is working. So this is still very much alive in the way we tell the story of women working. And instead, the book celebrates the work of women in a way that I feel had not been done before, at least not in this scale. One of the things that I'm most proud of and one of the most emotional moments when we presented the book around the world, this particular uh, event happened in Milan, was that we were in the Rizzoli bookstore in the gallery Vittorio Emanuele near the Duomo in Milan. There was a lot of people. And so we invited the kids to sit 
in the front, on the ground, uh, because otherwise they couldn't see anything. And one of the kids, before the beginning of the presentation, stood up with the book open on the page of Ada Lovelace, uh, the computer programmer, and he showed that page to the rest of the audience, and he said, pointing at the illustration, my mom did this. He was the the son of one of the 60 female illustrators who we hired to illustrate the book. And he was so proud of the work of his mom because it was featured in, in the book. And that was a very emotional moment for me because by exposing children to the work of so many different women from all over the world, we were giving them a lens that had not been provided to look at the work of their moms as something to be proud of, not just something to feel that they were, you know, given less time. It was part of the design, but to see a work uh, in the words and in the tone of voice of this uh, child was a very, a very emotional moment because we, we, we don't nearly hear enough stories that celebrate the work of women and that talk about the work of women in this, in this sense. What's really interesting to me is there, there's so many studies that are coming out that talk about how young gender biases begin in children. Um, you, you have this idea that, you know, women only really experience challenges, you know, once they get to university or in their job, but really it sets in at the age of, of children hearing stories. And so it, it really does seem an interesting way to start fighting those gender biases early. Um, is that something that you guys were trying to work on? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. We read this research uh, that was published by Science uh, in the U.S., uh, conducted by three different U.S. universities, and it was about gender biases in kids from five to seven year, years old. And what they found was that at five uh, years of age, uh, girls still are as likely to attribute brilliance to boys as they are to their own gender. But when they get into school at six years uh, of age, despite the fact that on on average they have better grades, they start to attribute to, to think of brilliance as a male trait. So this shows that we are not born thinking that uh, women or girls are less valuable than men, but we learn that and we are socialized to learn that. And another very striking thing that happened in London, because I was here, uh, Manuel, another uh, EYL um, fellow, invited me to give a presentation in in his kids' school, at Gower School. And one of the girls uh, was uh, talking about her experience. And she must have been, I think six years old and she said that she loved playing football and all the boys she said was running around a lot but she was scoring but whenever she scored she thought that despite the fact that she was scoring the boys still thought that she was not a good football player and she was six she was six years old and this was like so painful for me because I could see my experience in her words. She was talking about football, but I struggle with this as a woman all the time because despite my professional achievements, I always think, I, I surprise myself thinking that the, the, the men in my uh, you know, professional category are somewhat more important, that their work is more important than mine. So I was, uh, you know, hard by her words and by the fact that an experience like this starts so early. But at the same time, I was somewhat comforted because the fact that she had the awareness to talk about this thing and to say that she was disturbed by having this thought is the first step into, you know, 
stopping the you know pass, pass stop passing on this lesson to the next generations your book came out i want to say right before the us elections yeah the uh, first it, one yeah so we launched the campaign during the presidential uh, campaign and we started shipping the box the day that we found out that donald trump had won and it has become somewhat of a symbol of the resistance movement that then uh, sort of emerged from uh, Hillary Clinton losing. And you see, um, when you look at the pictures from women's marches, you often see signs of rebel girls. And is that sort of a side effect you were expecting or anticipating? And how do you register how a, a children's book uh, became a symbol of, of, a, of a women's movement that has really led to, in many ways, um, incredible numbers of women running for, for elections and, and winning. Um, how do you reconcile that? Uh, it's been uh, an, an incredibly emotional moment uh, to see signs reading Rebel Girls at the Women's March uh, all around the world. Humbling, frankly, um, because, of course, we put all of our soul and our heart uh, into these books, but uh, you can never know if your work is going to resonate so profoundly with such a large portion of the population. And uh, both Ellen and I have been incredibly proud that uh, all these people could buy the book as a totem, as a symbol of their identity and of what, of, uh, as a symbol of resistance to what was happening in the US and then around the world. Mm-hmm. With that power comes a lot of uh, responsibility to be consistent with the values uh, that we put into the world with this book. And so, you know, I, I dedicate a lot of uh, my time now to think how I can take that responsibility and how I can um, honor the fact that so many people have made this book part of their identity and part of what they want to pass on to the next generations. So how do we move, how do I move, for example, personally from here to the next thing that I'll write and then to the next or to the next thing that I'll do? This is a big, you know, it is a big honor and with big honor uh, comes uh, big responsibilities. And how are you going to take the next step? Do you have an idea yet? One month and a half ago, I stopped working at a company that I co-founded with uh, Elena Timbuktu. So I am trying to take my time to understand where it is that I can serve best. Because, of course, I want to keep telling stories because that is my, my, my passion. But at the same time, the experience of building a company from the ground up and doing all the legwork that was necessary to, to bring the book to that level gave me a lot of insight also on other processes so I don't feel like I, I I want to live the life of an author because I would still like to you know to work with a community and to work with a team to serve a community I am you know trying to give myself the space and the time to also to let the right thing come to me personally I have a very strong bias for action so right now I'm trying not to freak out (laughs) because after eight years of uh, you know doing Timbuktu and building it and uh, hiring people and managing them of course my biggest uh, urge would be to launch myself into the next thing without thinking even just out of fear of the vacuum that that I have now, but um, I want to take my time, and I think that it is very important, especially in this day and age where we are bombarded by messages all the time, to try and let also that the experience of Rebel Girls really sink in, to understand 
the true impact that this thing had also on, on me as a person and what I can carry on of that experience into something new. Is there any way to take the momentum and the energy that led to so many women owning their status as protagonists of their own stories in the U.S. with the women's marches? How do we translate that in Europe? Because we have European elections coming up in, in, in a few months. And how do we make sure that women insist on being a part of that election and a, and a part of that vote and, and own, I, I like that term, these, these protagonists of their own stories, and own that? And, and how does that reflect into owning their role in choosing their governments and their, the direction that their countries are going in? You're from Italy, but you live in the U.S. Do you have any ideas for how to bring it back to Italy. I believe that initiatives like, for example, in the US, there is a, this um, organization called Emily's List. They basically support female candidates who are pro-choice. Uh, and that's the thing. It's very simple. Uh, but they offer guidance. They offer funding. So I think these kind of initiatives can go a long way into supporting more women to run for elections at the European level. It is demonstrated that whenever women get involved, usually communities behind them get more involved. So I believe that part of the issue with Europe and the fact that Movements also like the Me Too movement, for example, didn't take as much space in the public debate here as they did in the United States, was, is that misogyny is, is a very complex problem and it has different nuances in different countries. And because Europe is so diverse, of course, way more diverse than the uh, states that compose uh, the United States of America, makes it hard. Uh, to address this problem because in every country there is a little bit of a difference in the way misogyny manifests itself. In many ways, on the social interaction level, our countries are way more advanced than the... The US uh, is a way more segregated society in terms of genders. It is very unlikely in many cases that women and men hang out together unless they are dating. In our countries, it's not like that because we are used to have male or female friends even if we don't have a romantic interest in them. And this is a very big and important uh, aspect of our culture. At the same time, the public debate on uh, sexism and on misogyny is very behind compared to the US. So I think there is a, um, a responsibility of the media for each of our uh, you know, countries to tell these stories way more than they are doing and to give more space to these, uh, to these themes. But I also think that transnational initiatives to sustain and support and encourage more women to run are crucial to the future of the European Union. It's a, it's a big beast to tackle, it seems. <laughs> I'm going to shift a little bit to your experience as a, as a founder and, and as a startup. Rebel Girls is, a, is, is an incredibly successful example of crowdfunding. Can you talk a little bit about um, what drove you to choose crowdfunding as a way to fund your project? And what does it mean? And what does it mean for the future of, of companies and books and, and the ability of people to put their ideas out there without official venture capitalist funding? Part of what drove us to Kickstarter was the doors that were closed <laughs> in traditional funding for us. We raised the first seed round of a, around $600,000. And when we went out to raise an additional fund, we received a lot of no's. So either we could shut down the company or we could try to find 
something, something different. Now, one of the problems that we faced was that the vast majority of uh, venture capitalists are men. And while they could see that we were motivated and driven and um, we seemed like good entrepreneurs, they couldn't see the need of the products that we were proposing, not surprisingly, given what we did. So they just didn't feel that there was a market there because it was in their blind spot. And this is one of the main problems of most female founders. If you go and knock on the doors of venture capital, when you are in a room with only men, decide whether you get funded or not, then of course they're going to invest only if they see a market behind your idea. And because of their perspective on the world and their experience on the world, most of the things that women are interested in and most of the markets that women see are not seen by the decision makers. So this is one of the problems and one of the reasons why we decided to turn to Kickstarter. The other reason was that from the very beginning, it was clear that we wanted before launching the campaign to build a community behind this idea. So Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls was born at first as a newsletter. We sent every week a story to parents uh, that they could share with their children. And we started from a very small list of 25 people because we wanted the list to be highly, highly targeted. And this is something that is very, very important because many people have this idea that you have to, um, they think about marketing as a mass communication tool, but this has become increasingly false. So targeting has become, and intelligent targeting has become increasingly more important than having big numbers. And the courage to start small usually makes the difference between a successful and an and unsuccessful project. We started very small, both in terms of the people that we targeted as potential uh, buyers of the book, but also as uh, in terms of journalists. We only targeted an initial list of 100 journalists that was they were people who had written about Kickstarter campaign and who were interested in the themes that we were talking about. So there was a lot of research that went behind that instead of like spraying and praying a press release, which is what most people do because they are afraid if they don't target enough people, then not enough people are going to convert. So it was part of the success of the crowdfunding campaign was this intuition of targeting a very, very small group of early adopters that then turned into this big army of ambassadors that allowed us to have this campaign that that have become the most successful publishing uh, campaigns in the history of crowdfunding. You are seeing a lot more crowdfunded art and crowd-supported art. I'm aware of a platform called Patreon. I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, And that's the same thing. Do you think that the notion of, I guess, yeah, that people can fund art, the community, the world can fund art, do you think that's a model that's going to pick up moving forward? I believe Patreon is a very, very interesting platform, uh, especially because compared to other uh, crowdfunding platforms, it's uh, based on a subscription model, which gives the artist more stability which is one of the things that allows an artist to really develop a project over time. And the other 
aspect that is very interesting about Patreon is the fact that by virtue of having a subscription to an artist, you are likely to establish a relationship that evolves over time. And I believe this is uh, very important. And yes, that it will be one of the trends of the future of the arts, because um, in this time where identity has become, you know, a very important aspect of uh, people's lives and the way they choose whom to vote and how they live their lives, you know, to be connected to an artist and to feel that by virtue of having this long-term relationship with an artist, you can kind of influence and make that artist part of your personal brand. It is something that is uh, incredibly powerful. Part of the story of the internet is the democratization of information. And uh, part of the story of art is the relationship between um, mecenates and artists. So a long time ago, only very rich and noble people could have the opportunity to commission art to great artists. Platforms like Patreon have democratized this uh, mechanism. It will be interesting to see the effects that it has on the diversity of the uh, landscape in terms of uh, art production. That's really what what interests me about it. I mean, you mentioned how um, you had a lot of closed doors in Silicon Valley because there's this enormous lack of representation, which is another issue that we could go on about. But it seems like it's a good way to fight that lack of representation in the sort of standard structures that exist to support people. Women, people of color, underrepresented communities can find these other channels to get support and build the communities. Do you think that that in turn will influence the sort of bro culture of Silicon Valley and the sort of lack of representation that exists in the more sort of standard structures that exist? I believe that once new markets are uncovered, then yes, uh, the greed... of uh, targeting those markets uh, will uh, find its way to inhabit those markets. And there is a risk, of course, of cultural appropriation uh, there. But there is also an opportunity, of course, because uh, underserved markets could become uh, more served. Now, the real challenge is how do you own those markets and you avoid that the bro culture somewhat cannibalizes those discoveries and make them again part of the system because you know this is a beast that is incredibly powerful and that always finds its ways of feeding itself with whatever new things come up without uh, thinking too much about what the need of a community was behind the discovery of a new market or or a new uh, way of, of, of expression Right. (laughs) That is true. Do you think that there's something that European governments, both the national governments and the EU, can do to help support better representation in the arts across the board? I mean, I'm not sure that there are initiatives like Erasmus or something like that, but for artists that support women artists and underrepresented communities and stuff. Do you know if A, that exists, and B, is that something that would be beneficial for European artists? I believe there are a lot of programs for residences, for artists. Unfortunately, I think that for most of these programs, there is a matter of accessibility to the information of these grants. So maybe the grants are in place, Mm -hmm. but then how that information about those grants drills down and reaches these people that would normally even not even think that there are those opportunities, that is the real theme. Because otherwise, you know, the people that can navigate the system because of the education that they have or the, you know, status, uh, social status of their family, um, they will 
by having access to that information, they will have access to those programs. So it is a theme of understanding how these programs can become more open and uh, whenever you get applicants that are mainly look the same, then you should think long and hard about what you did wrong as opposed to the you know the common uh, reaction is to say we would welcome minority groups but they're not applying well if they're not applying it means that you're doing something wrong so one of the biggest themes both in politics and arts is to understand that when a minority does not show up it means that it it has the perception that it's not welcome. So it is our job as gatekeepers <laughs> to lower the barriers and to go where these people are and to let them know that they are welcome and to understand what in our organization is preventing them from applying, what information is not reaching them. That is not their problem. It's our problem if we authentically and genuinely want to make our uh, institutions and our society more inclusive. That's absolutely on point. So I'm going to close with a question, um, a more personal question. Who has inspired you? What leaders, alive or not alive today, inspired you? Well, Simon Weil was uh, one, I mean, it's been a great hero of mine forever. Her story, her biography, she's one of the mothers of Europe. So she's uh, someone that I've always looked up to on the European level. Frankly, Hillary Clinton was a big inspiration for me and for us as we wrote a book, because despite all the magnified shortcomings that you know everyone talked about, but the fact that she put the gender equality team at the front and center of a presidential campaign in the United States had an incredible impact and it will have an impact on generations to come. So that was uh, a very big inspiration for me. I would say I've been lucky because writing this book, I spent the last three years in company of all these incredible stories that are so different from, every story is so different from the next. And it really gave me confidence in uh, writing my own story and uh, not worrying too much when I have the feeling that whatever it is that I'm doing is different from what other people are doing or whatever path I'm imagining for my life may differ from uh, an ideal path, which is something that I think women have very, uh, like it's part of our ingrained internalized sexism because we always look to be legitimized by someone. But sometimes when you are, uh, all of the women that are in our books were trailblazers, they didn't care of legitimization from uh, the outside. They just followed their curiosity and they fought to live a life that was full and uh, fulfilling for them. So being surrounded by all of these stories and researching, of course, way more stories than the ones that uh, then made their way into the box, I kind of felt a little bit of their courage and a little bit of their confidence, and uh, I was inspired by their diversity more than uh, anything. That's a wonderful place to close. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Friends of Europe's Leading Views podcast. Tell us what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Leave a comment, a like, or a rating for us. Have a lovely day. Bye.